Good morning, Redeemer. If you have a Bible, please turn in it with me to Mark chapter 10. Today we're going to be covering uh, verses 13 through 16. Those of you keeping track, keeping score, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your covenant. We thank you for making us your covenant people. We thank you, Lord God, that you did not leave us in the world to fend for ourselves, but you have called us and equipped us um, to hear that calling, to respond to that calling, and, and to prosper, Lord God, because of it. Uh, and not to prosper in the way that the world considers prospering, but to prosper, Lord God, in humility and in childlike faith, and prospering in the way that the kingdom of heaven prospers. We thank you and we praise you, and we pray, Lord God, that as we open your word now, that we would understand it, that we would um, walk by its light, and that we would glorify you in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Now, after discipleship in marriage, Jesus is addressing the issue of discipleship regarding children. All throughout chapter 9, Jesus is explaining what discipleship looks like. And the first two uh, categories in which he applies all of that teaching is marriage and child rearing. But if we back up a little bit, this, is, this now is the third time that children will have come into this story. He's used them as examples twice. And, and now what we have are, are people bringing little children to him. And if you read this too quickly, as we usually do, without really pondering what, what is being said, it, it, it appears at the end that Jesus is having some sort of snuggle time with these little kids, right? He's putting his hands on them and he's blessing them and it sounds very sweet and very Hallmarkish. Uh, and he's just having this moment where he's like, I'm going to hug you, sit on my lap. But, but there is far more than that going on. What, what does it mean... What does it mean for the high priest to lay hands on someone? What does it mean for Jesus, who is now the father of a new race of men, to bless children? Um, There is something very important that Jesus is assuming, has been assuming, every time he brings children forward as an example. And I I think that is what um, we need to come to understand. What is it that he assumes about faith, about children, about covenant, about covenantal succession, as they call it, um, that causes him to say and do the things that he does. I I think we too easily miss it. And and so today, I would like to really dial in and focus on some aspects of that so that we can come to understand faith and covenantal succession the way Jesus does. Children, like women, derive their position in society primarily from their relationship to adult males as we covered last week, right? If a woman wasn't married, she wasn't a a part of society. Marriage was her entrance into the people of God, into having any sort of personhood as it came to the the community. Children are the same way. Children are only, right? No one considers them apart from who their father is. Sons, to be sure, were regarded as a blessing from God, but largely because they ensured the continuation of the family for another generation, also increasing the workforce, right? There's a reason uh, farmers tend to prefer to have sons, and it's because if you're going to put the kids to work on the farm, uh, you would prefer, I think, to have strapping young men than seven daughters. Seven daughters can, right, go out and work on the farm, but they're not going to do the same kind of job as seven sons. Now, that makes sense to us. 
there's something very in, inherently atomish, <laughs> very like Adam about this, right? I was just explaining to students this week about uh, the one-child policy in China, where I mean, why? 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 They, they want to have one child, okay? And and what they would do is, if they didn't have sons, they would try to hide the fact that they had a child, and they would expose the girls, or give up the girls, or somehow. Right? They would go and have abortions and whatnot because they preferred to have sons. And that, I mean, right, this is Mao, this is communist China, this is a very worldly way of thinking. But if you go into first century Israel, the people of God think very similar. Uh, in, that, in those days, Roman culture, uh, when a woman had a baby, they would leave it on the doorstep, and if the, husband, if the father came home and picked up the baby and acknowledged the baby, they kept it. And if he didn't, they didn't. Uh, and this is, believe it or not, a, Greek, uh, a Roman historian, Tacitus, is angry at the Christians because they can't get rid of the Christians. And the Christians are so loving that not only do they take care of their own, they take care of ours, he says. And the reason is, is because the Christians would go out to the trash heap on the edge of town and at the end of the day and take up all the babies that were left out there and take them home and raise them. So again, that sounds, that's Roman. That sounds very worldly. But, but here you have these men. What is their response when, when the little children come to Jesus? Get them out of here. What are you doing bringing them here? Why are you distracting the teacher? We've got important business to talk about. Like, who's the greatest? Right? We've got to talk about kingdom stuff. And, and Jesus is trying to reorient them. And, and, and it's amazing how many commentaries I took up said, this isn't about children, we still don't get it. How is he using children as an example? And this is not a sermon or a text about children. Well, it's about kingdom. It's about the kingdom. It's about how you enter the kingdom. It's about the kind of people who enter the kingdom. Yeah, but he's using children. <laughs> so couldn't it on some level be about the actual children? Now let's go back and visit some of the other things that Jesus has been saying about children. Mark chapter 9, verse 37. He says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So whoever receives a child receives Jesus Christ. If you receive this child who's come to you, this messenger who's come to you from the Lord God, if you receive this child, you're receiving not only Jesus, but the Father. Is this just some sort of weird, uh, cute metaphor? I mean, what is he talking about? How is it that a small child who cannot articulate the faith be a representative of Jesus Christ? Because this is the point, right? The, the apostles are... Angels, they're messengers, they're representatives. They come in the name of Jesus Christ. And what they proclaim is what Jesus proclaims. This is what it means to be coming in his name. And he's saying that little children do it. Now, any and all little children? No, no. See, you can't go the other direction just be like, oh, children and their innocence. They're not. We're Calvinists. They're not. They're sinners. They're wicked little sinners. <laughs> right? I've got six. Trust me. Right? If nothing else, I would be a one-point Calvinist. Depravity is a thing. So this isn't another, another hallmarkish thing. We're like, oh, the sweet little children are just like Jesus. No, he's not talking about any kid. He's talking about specific kids. He's got his followers there, and he takes one of their children, one of his followers' children, and he puts them in the midst and says, this child has my name upon them, and if you receive them, you receive me. 
Now, how many of you guys who have kids have been sitting there and, right, against all odds, you receive the Lord Jesus Christ through your child because your child is telling you something that you should have known or should have done or should have understood yourself, and there's the voice of God right in your living room. This is, I don't, I've done too good a job now. I have to be very careful about the crap that I listen to on the radio because sometimes I like listening to crap, but my son Titus will not stand for it. <laughs> He's like, Dad, uh, what is this song about? Oh man, here we go. He doesn't actually want to know. He wants me to turn the station, right? And then I realize, and I'm like, well, the voice of God from the back seat. <laughs> That's what Jesus is talking about. If, if a little child comes, the little child can represent him just like a grown-up can. In our passage today, Jesus takes the children up in his arms. Now, this word that they use for child could mean up to a 12-year-old. Now, up to a 12-year-old, because a 13-year-old boy is bar mitzvah, as, as commonly understood, and then they become a member of Jewish society at 13. So in the, in, in the word that they use for child could be someone up to 12. But in this case, Jesus, in our story today, takes the child up in their arms. So how small is this child? Right? He's not holding a 12-year-old. I could have, again, my son Titus is 12. I can have him come up here, and I don't think I could live, just hold him in my arms like we're going to snuggle. It would look weird. He would never forgive me for doing that to him. <laughs> but Jesus is not taking, like, tweens into his arms and snuggling with them. That's not what he's doing. He's taking, right, the little children were brought to him, and he's taking them up in his arms. Think of how small these children are. Mark chapter 10, verse 13 through 16. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. Right Now, this is the story we're talking about. This is the story. He's already said, little children can come in my name. Now what you have are people bringing little children to Jesus so that he can touch them and he can bless them. And the disciples, the first thing they do is, what are you doing with these little kids? Remember Jesus when he was a child? And they, and they leave him there for three days, and it takes the parents three days to remember that he's there. How important are the kids? And then when they find him, it's not like now, right? You're not worried about CPS coming. They're angry at Jesus for doing this. He said, why would you do this to us? Right? We're not to blame. We're the grown-ups. No, you're to blame, you kid. You're supposed to just go where I go and do what I say and not wander off. So here these men are, and they've got serious business on their minds, and, and Jesus keeps getting distracted by these little kids. It's natural to think that the children were brought by their mothers, but the masculine gender of the pronoun in the statement that the disciples rebuked them points rather in the direction of their fathers, or even to children themselves. And this, uh, I like, so it's not most likely their mothers. It's either their fathers or other children. Now, if Jesus, at two different times now, has been using children, he takes a child and puts it in their midst. He takes this child, he refers to the children. It could be that the children that he's already been interacting with are like, hey, listen, little kids, all of our little friends here, there is this man who doesn't act like a grown-up. He tends to care about us. He likes us. He, he's interested in us. He uses us as an example, right? I don't know what little kid would argue this way, but they understand that Jesus is not like other grown-ups. So it's either their fathers or, in fact, the other little kids who he's already been interacting with are bringing the younger ones to Jesus. 
Now, we've had plenty of times throughout the Gospel of Mark, people bringing others to Jesus. And what is it that, they, that they're trying to communicate? Those people need Jesus, but can't get there on their own. So these children are responding to Jesus as if Jesus is somebody who can bless them, as if Jesus is somebody who considers them to be important, who, can, who is, cares about them, is concerned about them. It is not said why the disciples sought to interfere with the children. It doesn't say uh, that they considered the children un, unimportant. It doesn't explain why. The automatic reaction that they give, though, is to get these kids out of here. But Jesus says, do not forbid them. It goes on to say that he, the, the disciples rebuked the little children. Now, this, this word rebuked is a word we've heard, and it's the word that Jesus uses when he rebukes his spirit to cast it out. It's also the word that P- Peter rebuked Jesus for saying what he said about the Messiahship. And so when you're rebuking someone in the way that, in the context of Mark, is that you're trying to cast the spirit out of them. Jesus rebukes the spirits and they're cast out of people. Peter is trying to cast the spirit out of Jesus because they, he doesn't like the spirit of Messiahship that Jesus has brought to them. And now here they are, they're rebuking these small children. They rebuked the man, who, the, the one who had exercised in Jesus' name, who wasn't following them. They keep rebuking people because they don't like the spirit that those people come in. And whose spirit is it? Jesus goes around, he sees the spirit of Satan all around, and he casts it out. The disciples at this particular moment, this is the third time they've attempted to rebuke the spirit of God that's active and working, doing the kingdom work that they ought to be doing. They couldn't exercise a demon. This man can, and they want to rebuke him for it. They say Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Messiah. He tells them exactly what that means, that we're going to go now, and we're going to go lose big, and Peter rebukes him for it. And now they're rebuking small children. How dare you come to him? How dare you bother him? How dare you think that he's going to give you anything? And this is very troubling that these men who are supposed to be the leaders, who are supposed to be examples, are the ones who are opposed to the Spirit of God. Now, we know the end of the story. They don't remain that way. Well, 11 of them don't. (laughs) There is one of them who clearly never, right? He doesn't repent. He doesn't turn. But 11 of them are healed by God. That spirit that eluded them all the time that he was on earth finally descends upon them against their will in a way that they do not deserve. Mark chapter 10, verse 14. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. You have to become like little children if you're going to come into the kingdom of God. Right? And modern, evangelical, Baptistic way of thinking is you can't possibly be a little child. You have to just be like a little child. You have to be like a little child, but you can't be a child. Because little children, right? <laughs> little children have to become like adults. And in this way of thinking, little children have to become like adults in order to what? To become like little children again? It seems like they kind of cut right to the front of the line. You are little children. You're already like little children. Jesus is assuming something about them. 
He doesn't want them to grow up to be like the disciples. He wants the disciples to grow up and be like the little children. Now, the word indignant means to arouse to anger. It expresses vehement displeasure. Jesus, at this point, is, because he's Jesus, he's holding his temper, but he's doing it with difficulty. Okay, That's what the language expresses. I've already said, there's plenty of things he said through gritted teeth. This one, he probably had to do a little breathing exercise for a few minutes before he answered, because he he is hot and he is not happy. Rather than disbarring the children, Jesus commends them as the true heirs of the kingdom of God. You guys, you grown-ups are arguing about who's greatest. You grown-ups are arguing about who gets in. You grown-ups are worried about what we're going to do about the Romans and what we're going to do about this. And these little children want to come to me for blessing and for me to lay their hands on them because what they want is me. They want Jesus. They're not, I mean, right? They're little kids. What do they know? They don't even really know why. But they want to be with him. Such is the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. By coming to Jesus, the children are coming to the one in whom God's present reign is made manifest, demonstrating a living faith and belief. And they're not asking him for signs. They're not asking him where does he get the authority to do the things that he's doing. They're not asking them any of the adult questions that all the adults are distracted by. They're simply coming to him because they know what he has they want. They want to be where he is. It does not appear, right? It does not appear that Jesus is saying, be like these little children. Well, what does that mean exactly? Be immature? (laughs) Be like these little kids and cry when you don't get what you want. Be annoying, Right? Because little kids can't be, right? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? My wife and I just went through this meme, uh, list of memes, and it was hilarious. And it's these kids, like, lying on the ground, totally freaking out. And then the parent writes there exactly what it was that happened that caused the kid to freak out like they're freaking out. And it's hilarious. Because one of them is like, uh, I, wouldn't, I, I wanted him to throw away his messy diaper. And there's the child, like, hugging it on the ground. Like it's his long-lost best friend. Right, there's another one of the kids laying on the ground and he doesn't want to go anywhere. And they keep trying to tell the child, we're not going anywhere, so stop worrying about it. But he's just on the floor screaming, I don't want to go anywhere. Now, is this what Jesus means? It's not what he means. I mean, they don't need to become like this because this is already what the disciples are like. <laughs> right? They're already childish in the, in the negative sense of the word. He doesn't want them to be like that. That's not the virtue that these particular children have. It's also not that they're innocent because they're not. The emphasis in this brief story falls on the children themselves rather than on their virtues, real or imagined. They have no virtues. They have nothing. It's not what they're coming to Jesus with. It's the way in which they're coming to Jesus with open hands. That's what it means to enter the kingdom of heaven, to come with nothing, because you have nothing. You have nothing to offer. God looks out on the history of mankind and he does not see one person worthy, one person prepared, one person who will comprehend even the grace that he is about to give them. All he understands, and, and everyone who's ever come to Jesus has understood, fundamentally, at the root of it, is open hands, needy open hands. Where you understand, I don't understand this Jesus guy, I just want to be where he is. I want to be with his people. I want to do the things he did. I don't really understand most of the things he did, 
but I want to be. And, and, and adults who are first converted, this is as simple as it usually gets. You talk to them, and they're like little kids. They don't understand how anything works. They just want to be with him, just like these little babies. A little child has absolutely nothing to bring, and whatever a child receives, he or she receives it by grace on the basis of sheer neediness. I mean, we go out, um, we go out, and, and my oldest son babysits. And it's not like we just leave him there and say, okay, have at it, good luck. They are so needy, I've got to, we write down, okay, here's what you're going to eat while we're gone. Here's what you're going to do while we're gone. Here's how you contact us while we're gone. And, and we're not there, and you still have to write on instructions. They're totally, in one sense, completely helpless. You wake up tomorrow morning, and they wo- have woken up every day for their eight years that they've been on this world, and they still don't know what the first thing is they ought to do. And you're like, well, you know, uh, same as yesterday. And this is what children are like. They have nothing, they come with nothing, they understand nothing in one sense. And it's because if we make it about those things, what we're doing is we're changing the nature of faith itself. Trust itself. Mark chapter 10, verse 16. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. People wanted Jesus to touch their children. Jesus did more than touch them, however. Again, <clears throat> excuse me. Again, this is not just some sort of sanctified snuggle fest. He took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. What exactly did people hope to receive from the touch of, of blessing from Jesus? In the past, what did people hope to receive? Healing. Help. They, they, right? They, they, and, and like the lady who had the bleeding inside of her, she didn't even really understand. She just wanted to get close enough to touch Jesus because she thought somehow that would make her better. And remember that story? <laughs> the touch of Jesus did far more than she could have ever hoped or dreamed. And these little kids are just, they, they don't, they don't understand. They just want to be with him and they want to touch him. And the parents who are bringing them want the same thing. Right? I'm not really sure what you're going to do to them. It's not like suddenly they're going to get smarter. They're suddenly going to become more obedient. I just want them to be where you are, Jesus. The laying on of hands is an important part of ancient religious ritual. This is not just a simple touch. There is a lot going on in these words, blessing and laying on of hands. The laying on of hands is an important part of ancient religious ritual, in prayer, in invocation, in divine blessing, Jacob blessed the sons of Joseph by laying hands on their heads. Jesus touched or laid his hands on the sick, and the apostles or the apostles did the same thing. The action was symbolic of spiritual blessing flowing from one person to another. On the Day of Atonement, Aaron placed his hands on the head of a particular goat, which was to be sent into the wilderness, and confessed the people's sins over it, thus putting them upon the goat. And the goat becomes the scapegoat, who represents Israel. And, and, and the authority and identity of Israel is, is there in the authority and identity of the priest who lays his hands on a goat, and the goat becomes Israel. So the laying on of hands isn't just like a hug. You're conferring something on someone by laying their hands on them. We, we uh, ordained Nate a few weeks ago, and what did everybody, all the officers of the church came up here, and what did we do? Blow kisses at him? No, we laid hands on him. I was blowing kisses at him. I heart Nate. <laughs> in the New Testament, baptism and the reception of the Holy Spirit um, 
on occasion accompanied, was accompanied by the laying out of hands. There's this odd connection between the two. In Acts chapter 8, verse 14 through 19, the gift of the Spirit was conferred only when baptism had been followed by apostolic laying on of hands. Acts 19.6 links the laying on of hands with baptism and the gift of the Spirit expressed in tongues and prophecy. In Hebrews 6, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 2, refers to teaching about baptisms and laying on of hands, probably as instruction given to new converts. He says the elementary doctrines, and he says the washings and the laying on of hands. So the laying on of hands is something very fundamental. It's a, very, it's a basic doctrine to the apostles. Now, how many of you guys have ever heard a sermon on the laying on of hands? Well, you do right there. Okay, good. Good, for, good on you, brother. I never have. That's a basic doctrine. I, I looked through five systematic theology books. Nobody had laying on of hands as a basic doctrine. A second picture of blessing is the blessing of Old Testament fathers on their sons as they approach their time of death. Now, this is where we get things get really interesting. Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem. He has made up his mind he's going to die. He knows he's going to die, and now is the time. Now is the time. He is approaching his death much like Moses was on the mountain, much like Jacob was, much like Abraham was. He knows he's going to die. And so what he does is he gathers his children, those to whom the kingdom belong, those to whom his name rests, and he puts his hands on them and he blesses them just like the patriarchs did. Isaac blesses Jacob and Esau. Jacob blesses his sons. Moses blesses Israel before he dies. The ritual of blessing was well known in Israel. Noah blessed Shem and Japheth. Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. Jacob blessed his sons and his grandsons. Such blessings tended to be officious in nature, related particularly to the passing on of one's name or property. As he's already said, children, these children come in my name. The laying on of hands was also a priestly rite of investiture in Israel, whereby wisdom and the spirit of office were conferred on the ordinand. In his healing of the sick and the aid of the needy, Jesus laid hands on more common people and more frequently than any Jewish leader ever. They were very careful to record the major teachings and works of rabbis, and none of them went around blessing and laying hands on as much as he did. His touch from blessing, but it was also a blessing, a tangible expression of God's unconditional love for the unclean, for foreigners, for women, and for children. Jesus' personal touch of common people became a distinguishing mark of his bearing and his ministry. And I just want to stop and say, right, he's not going around and he's not finding the wisest scribe. He's not going around and finding the most worthy disciple. He has children here. And what did the children understand about the law of God? What did these children understand about the rituals and rites of the temple? And he's conferring upon them inherency. He's he's giving them an inheritance. He's giving them his name. And he's doing it to little children. Now, my question here is, what is it that he's assuming by doing this? There are things that he believes about faith, about covenantal succession, about children, that, I, that when we read it, we don't, we don't have these assumptions, generally speaking. Right? We think this is some sort of elaborate metaphor, and it is, but he's actually doing something to the children who are there in his hands. And one of the things that he is assuming is that they have faith, that they are capable of having faith. And this is called pedo-faith. Pedo meaning child. 
again, where theologians come up with a $50 word instead of just saying children, the faith of children, pedo faith. There's a couple of ways to think about this. First off, every convert's faith is pedo faith. Every single convert. A 45-year-old man who is baptized into the church has the same faith as a little baby, as a six-month-old baby. Because everyone who comes from outside comes in is what? Is born again. They're born a second time. They're little babies. And so all faith at the beginning is pedo faith. We like to think as adults that our faith is more sophisticated than that. We like to think that, right, well, of course he chose me. Of course he gave me the ability to understand these things. And I remember sitting there as a new Christian, opening my Bible, thinking I understood so much. And six months later, I would say I didn't know anything. And I've been saying that every six months since. Right? And just when I think I really know something, then they give me this big test at ordination, and I realize I really don't know anything. <laughs> right? And I love John Adams at the age of 98, says the more I learn, the more I realize I know nothing. Because grown-ups want to make it seem like their faith is more sophisticated than the faith of a six-month-old baby, a six-day-old baby. Right? When you come up out of the font, <laughs> you're a baby. That's what you are. Your faith is not more sophisticated than a baby who is six days old. Pedo faith is something that is assumed. And it's assumed again and again and again and again. We demand adult-like conversions from children. We have turned this whole lesson of Jesus around on its head because this is what people always do. We don't say become like the little children. We say little children become like adults. And when you can sit down and when you can articulate to me the definition of faith, the definition of covenant, if you can show me some works, if you can prove it to me that you really are in the people of God, we'll let you in. But that's not what Jesus says. Right? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, no, grown-ups, be like them. Be like the little kids. Not little kids. Look at my disciples here, how sophisticated and wise they are. How patient and loving. And you ought to be just like them. At no point does he do that. He doesn't do that once. But this is the third time he's got children as an example. Entrance into the kingdom of God is the great leveler. It brings down the proud and lifts up the humble. In the midst of the disciples' argument about greatness, Jesus took a child and placed that child in their midst, saying, to such belong the kingdom of God. Jesus said, don't stumble one of these little ones who believe in me, for it were better for you to set your feet in cement and to chuck yourself into the Puget Sound. Not, right? What, what are you doing stumbling them? Why, why are you barring them? Why are you limiting access to the throne of grace? Right? We, we don't like it when uh, churches have a grown-up convert and we make, right? Oh, you're going to take classes for a year. You're going to meet with the pastors every week. And in a year, we'll baptize you. No. When a, <laughs> think of Acts. This is, happens all the time. Oh, uh, yeah. How come I can't be baptized? You got some water? And generally speaking, if you're like, oh, do you believe in Jesus Christ? I do believe in Jesus Christ. You'd be like, all right, well, let's find some water. I think I got a bottle of water in my car. Let's do this right now. 
Right? And most of us would be very indignant about a church who set up a two-year program in which the person who wants to be converted and baptized is on a, tr- like, right? Takes two years to do it. Six months even, we'd be indignant. So why is it that we make little kids wait till they're in their 20s? Till they're seven? Why are they waiting? Who would ever make an adult wait? But, but we think that the faith of the adult is more sophisticated and more capable to understand these things. It, it, it reveals assumptions that we make about faith itself, about the gifts of God. Now, if you turn with me to, to Hebrews chapter 6, it's going to be right at the end of chapter 5. Hebrews chapter, at the end of chapter 5 and going into verse, uh, chapter 6, this is, this is what Paul says. He says in, in, in chapter 5, verse 12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. Why does Paul say that these believers need milk and not solid food? What kind of people need milk? Babies. Thank you. Amen, brother. They don't need steak and potatoes. Right? (laughs) I'm notorious for all six of my kids and my nephews and nieces for attempting to feed them things they ought not to eat because they're too small. I have nearly killed several children with carrots and popcorn and, in fact, one time steak. And my mom was like, what are you doing? They need milk. Right? Because you say that kind of thing about a baby. Paul goes on to say in chapter 6, verse 1 through 3, Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Now, this is my argument for why the church itself, 2,000 years old, is still a baby. Because what are we still arguing about? Do you see in this list of doctrines, doctrines that Protestants and Catholics and Orthodox and Pentecostals cannot get together on? The washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection, what's coming at the end of time, right? You get, a, right? You get a, six Christians together from six different denominations. They're still going to be arguing primarily about these same doctrines, But this is not maturity. So the church itself is still young because we don't understand these things. We we haven't moved on to deeper and and more more complex doctrines. In Luke chapter 1, verse 39 through 45, this is what we read. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. The the baby heard the voice of Mary and leapt in the womb of Elizabeth. Why? Why do people leap with joy when they hear? (laughs) Right? And in this case, they don't hear Jesus speaking. They hear Mary speaking. Now, is, does this child believe? Does this child say anything? No, the child's in the womb and it's squirming. Right? It's leaping for joy in the womb, which is uncomfortable. But why is it, right? Why is it that when we want someone to show their faith, leaping for joy isn't something we have them do? Well, because you need to be able to articulate the fact that you understand the difference between the, you know, the doctrine of justification and the doctrine of sanctification and exactly what grace is and what's total depravity, and we make entering the kingdom of God very complicated. 
Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So why is it that we want to take, right, so many Christians want to take their children and put them in a room outside of the main service and, and give them felt dolls to play with and listen to little jingles about Noe, Noe, and his arky, arky? What is that all about? If faith comes through hearing and you want your children to believe, to have faith, why won't you put them in the service like we do? where they hear the word of God preached. And the argument that I hear is, well, they, how, how do they understand it? And then what I do is I start to ask questions about the last sermon that adult heard. And you know what? I think your kid was paying attention more than you were. <laughs> My kids take notes now. And we, uh, when we leave here, the first thing we do is we have a discussion in the car. And, and, and all the kids who are older need to tell me what the sermon is about. And I, they say that I'm like, I don't know. Did I say that? Did I say that? Oh, I did say that. Well, that really helped you. Well, okay. Well, hey, go Holy Spirit. <laughs> right? But we live in a modern Christians where what we want is we take all the kids and we take them to kids' church and they, we never give them anything that looks mature, nothing that is complicated. And then when they become 20 years old, 20 years old we, they want a church that looks like kids' church. Whereas we can go down. I'll, I won't name names. There's a few churches in the neighborhood here. We can go down there and it looks like kids' church. Part of the problem that I had with Mars Hill where I went to is it, it never got me past the st- like conversion. It's like you're just converting everybody here every week. And at some point, I need to hear something beyond just, just the gospel presentation. The gospel presentation in a more maybe there's some elements of it that I've worked beyond like I know I need him. Okay, I, I know I need Jesus. We've covered that in the last 82 weeks. So now how about you go a little further in? We don't assume that children ha- can receive the word of God and, expre- and express any kind of reception of it. The baby leaps in the womb. You would be shocked if you talk to your kids about sitting through the service, what it is they picked up, what it is they, they noticed, what it is that they were paying attention to. So pedo faith is something that Jesus assumes. He assumes that children can possess it. He assumes that they're capable of of, of receiving the word of God, and having faith in him. So what are you supposed to do (laughs) to people who express having faith in Jesus Christ? What what are we required as the church to do to such people? Hold them at arm's length? No. You put water on them, you put them in the covenant, and you give them bread and wine. Oh, well, Mike, come on. You've got to be able to articulate what communion is. Oh, okay, articulate what communion is. I'll try, and I'll fail. Right? I, I, could, I could try right now to give you a definition of what it is, and, and you're like, oh, okay, that sounds reasonable on the surface, but then you, right, you get to a point, who understands it? The bread and wine don't cease to be, be bread and wine. It somehow becomes Jesus Christ, and it somehow is feeding a man that lives inside of me. And that, did that sound kind of silly? Because every time I hear someone really try to explain communion, it sounds about as silly as that. Like, I don't know. He said, do it. He said something is transferred to me when I do it. And so I'm going to believe him. And, and I'm like a little child. And I've read it. I mean, like, and then you go to the doctrine of the Trinity. And I mean, I've read a stack of books this, on the Trinity as tall as I am. And you know what I can tell you? There's one God in three persons. Well, what does that mean? <sighs> I don't know. Let's sing to him and receive from him. And let's, like little kids, just go and hug him. But we want to make it sophisticated. We want to make it something that the kids have to articulate. And what's just, it, there's no end to it. Okay, parents, sit down and articulate it for me. 
Now, there's something else here that this goes right to the heart of. He assumes that children can have faith. He's not talking about children in general. He's not just saying, all children are coming in my name. All children can possess faith. He's not, it's not random. He's dealing with his followers and their children. Jesus knows the Father. And if you turn to Exodus chapter 20, this is the law of God. And, and part of this, too, is we don't understand the role that the law of God plays in the, in, in, in the New Covenant. We don't. But this is what it says in the law of God. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. To those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. This passage is teaching us that God's attributes of love and justice shape our understanding of covenant succession. He comes and he, get, he's, he grabs a hold of you. And what, what he has proven, going all the way back to Noah, is that he doesn't just want individuals, he wants a people. He wants a people. He doesn't just work, just work with individuals. He does, but what he wants to come from that individual is just like Adam and Eve... He wants the two to become one flesh, and he wants them to have godly offspring. That's what he assumes about every marriage done in his name. This is why in Malachi 2.15 it says, He did not make them one with a portion of their spirit. Did he not make them one with a portion of their spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. And this is not simply an Old Testament idea. Right, this, this, I mean, there's a few examples of this in the New Testament where not only Jesus, but everybody, all the apostles, are assuming these things. They assume that children can have faith and that the, the, the children of believers are naturally, by nature, supposed to be considered part of the covenant family. Did I say written in the book of life? No, I did not. I said part of the covenant family. Two different things. Acts chapter 2, verse 39 for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, I was a 25-year-old single person, and I heard a sermon that was a call. My children hear the call. How do they hear the call? Well, they hear the call in the way that I discipline them. They hear the call in the curriculum that I choose for their homeschooling. They hear the call through the fact that they read their Bibles every day, even when they're grumpy about it. They hear the call through the songs that we sing, through the way that I love my wife, through everything that goes on in my household. God is constantly calling them. That is what he expects. He wants them to come into the covenant family. They're being called to his presence. He wants us to lift up our children and bring them to Jesus. Does that mean that no matter what, those kids will make it all the way to the end? No, because no person who's ever baptized or take communion makes it all the way to the end. Right? It's not like, well, that adult we baptized slam dunk, baby, all of those people, clear path all the way to the end. No way. No way. There are adults who are baptized, who come into the church for a time, and this is sad because I'm already, in, at this stage of my life, realizing you don't end with the same people you began with. There was a huddle of us there when I first became a Christian, and when we first started to get married, and when we first started to have kids, and not all of them are making it through at this point. Now, does that mean they're not going to come back? No. 
But we understand this about adults. But then when it comes to children, well, well, you know, what happens if they grow up and fall away? Well, then the church will deal with that fallen away person just like they deal with every fallen away person. God willing. It's not a crapshoot. It's not a crapshoot. Right? Every single person is called into the kingdom of God, must receive the sacraments of the kingdom of God, and must be exhorted to remain in the kingdom of God. Did I say the book of life? No. I said the kingdom of God, the people of God, the church of God, the body of Christ. This is the body of Christ. We might be quite surprised in the end, all the Christians that you know, who actually you'll see, you'll be like, whoa, hey, way over there. What are you doing over there? Those are the goats. Right? Spurgeon loves to, to how many uh, Christians sitting there listening to their pastor every week and they get into heaven and they think, oh, look, there's my pastor over there. Because that's possible. Because we don't, there are things about this that are so mysterious we can't possibly figure them out. But what we don't want to do is to say that this is serious business and so keep the kids away from Jesus. That's, that's not at all what he's arguing for. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 through 4. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Now this is the argument he's making. As they were going through on the dry ground, there's the walls of water on either side and, the, and there's mist, there's water coming down from it. Right? Have you ever been near the ocean and there's sort of just ocean spray in the air? It's partially why I don't like beaches. It's like I don't like getting wet. And some beaches, you're standing there and there's just like water in the air. And you're like, what is this? Why do we leave the hotel? So as they're walking through, the mist is falling on them. And he, <laughs> Paul is saying they're baptized into Moses. Now, it's not the kind of miracle where the mist is falling on all the grown-ups and it's somehow missing the kids. It's falling on the whole nation of Israel. And the entire nation of Israel goes and drinks from a single rock. And who's the rock? The rock is Jesus. Okay, now articulate that for me. Right? Grown-ups, we're very sophisticated. We should be able to understand that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal one, is a rock that Israel is drinking out of in a desert. What? Okay, it's, that's what it says, so I'm going to go with that. The entire nation of Israel, man, woman, and child, goes into the, out there and they eat manna. And what does the manna represent? Jesus. So why is it in the Old Testament those children would participate in types and shadows of Jesus and now New Testament children can't actually participate in the real thing? That is so confusing to me. How could they participate in the, <laughs> in the shadow of it but not the substance of it? And they ate and drank, and he's referring here to baptism and communion. It, it was read for us today in Deuteronomy, right? <laughs> Moses takes all of Israel, and he takes all the grown-ups and all the elders and all the important people here, and then he sends Joshua, his assistant, off with the little kids to do little kid covenant. No. That's not what it says. He takes the entire people of God, and he's exhorting them. Do you think the little kids understand Right? Because he reads the whole law to them. Do you think they understand Deuteronomy 25.11? Deuteronomy 25.11. When two men are fighting in the street and the wife of one goes out to save her husband and reaches out and grabs a part of the other man, cut her hand off and show her no mercy. That's a law. And there, here's Moses reading this. 
And there's all the people of God. Do you think everyone there understood what he was doing, what he was saying? Did the adult Israelites understand when they were going through on the dry ground that the mist was baptizing them into Moses? No, the grown-ups didn't understand it, neither did the kids. Did that matter? And this is the last argument that I'm going to make here, the last thing that Jesus is assuming. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Is the, Holy, the Holy Spirit comes and enlivens an unbeliever. Is there anything that can prevent him from doing that? Anything. Is my ability, right, if I don't have the ability to speak, to walk, to talk, does that hinder somehow the Holy Spirit? Is somebody with Alzheimer's, can they not receive the Holy Spirit? (laughs) Can they not express faith? Can an autistic child? Is there anything that bars the Holy Spirit from working in someone's heart and mind? No. Not at all. And, and, And when an adult is sitting there, and an adult is enlivened by the Holy Spirit, was it anything in the adult that caused the Holy Spirit to do that? It's a gift. The adult receives a gift. Why couldn't children? Why couldn't they? These are deep waters and these are difficult things. And I don't at all mean to imply that they're, they're easy and super clear. Because there's a lot that goes into this. There's co- what is a covenant? What does it mean to be in the covenant? What does it mean to have covenant succession? What is it, right? What is the ordo salutis? These different things that happen to us where we're called and regenerated and we're born again and then we're justified and we're sanctified. And, and what I, like, you get into that argument and you're like, how does that work exactly? At like 1101, I'm regenerated and 1102, I'm justified and 1103, I'm sanctified? No, that's not how it works. These, these are difficult and mysterious things. The problem that I have with all of this, the problem that exists with these disciples standing there, is that they are presuming to, un- presuming to understand things that they don't understand. And they're barring people from coming to Jesus that they ought not to bar. They shouldn't be preventing these children from coming to him. And, and so the real, right, there is a ton here for us to chew on. Some of us already believe in pedal faith. Some of us already believe in covenant succession. Some of us are already there. And we're like, okay, they're preaching to the choir. Some of us, there's a great deal about a story like this reveals things that we think we understand about Scripture, but we don't. Because I'm with the Westminster Confession. It's not primary and secondary doctrines. It's things that are clear and things that are unclear. And there's a great deal that's unclear to the average Christian. But the real lesson here is what is it that we presume to understand that's causing us to prevent people from coming to Jesus Christ? What is causing our witness in this world to be like the disciples where we're like, could you, can you leave Jesus alone? He's got more serious business to deal with, like how great I am. How much, of, how much of our Christian life is taken up with that opposed to, hey, let's bring as many people as we can, man, woman, and child, to Jesus because that's what they need. We all need to slow down. We all need to take a, right? We all need to sit down at the kitchen table and eat the largest humble pie we can find. Because we do not. We think we understand these things, and we do not. We think we're open-handed and generous, and we are not. 
We think we're like God, and we got a long way to go. But every, but, but what God begins, he finishes. Whether you're 20 or 2, whether you're 80 or 8 days, the Lord God works where he wants to work, in one sense, how he wants to work, and all we need to do is get out of his way. Right? All he requires of us is open hands. And how many of us come to him pontificating and lecturing him? And, and, and how often do we come to him like these little children? It's like, I don't, I, you know, I'm going to pray. I'm just going to come and kneel before you and bow my head, and I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to be here with you. I'm going to open your word. I'm going to read one verse, one verse about you, and I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to be with you. No, no, no. That's, we got serious stuff to do. We're adulting. Right? Adulting is serious business. My prayer for all of us is that we would be humble, that we would look to Christ, that we would not look for ways to keep people from Jesus, and that we would comprehend in our own hearts and minds those things that cause us to keep people from Jesus, and that all we would be about in our, in our own lives is him, and that all we would desire for everyone that we know is that they would come to him and that they, he would lay his hands on them and he will bless them. And what we will find is he will do that to far more people than we think. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your, your kindness and your grace, not only to us but to our children. But we know, Lord God, that these are deep waters, that they are difficult things to understand. We know that your spirit, Lord, that, that you went away from us and you and your Father sent your spirit to us that we might look into these things and that we might comprehend the thoughts of God, that we might know the inner works of, of the triune God, the, the maker of heaven and earth. And we pray, Lord God, that as we do, as we participate in this glorious way of life, that we would not presume, that we would be humble, and that we would be contrite, that we would cry out to you, that we would rejoice in you, and that we would draw near to you, and that we would not prevent people from coming to you. And amen. Amen.